Sabah al-Yasmin, Sabah al-Khair from Bethlehem. Today, I'm very happy to have a dear friend join us, Lisa Markwell. Lisa, thank you to be joining us on the show. Good morning, and it's an absolute pleasure to be here down the line from London. Lisa, we, we met when you were in Palestine, and you came to discover Palestinian flavors, which you were already quite familiar with. But I, before we come and speak about Palestine, I want to speak about you a bit, because you're a journalist who became a chef and is still a journalist. Can you tell us a bit about the, this change of career and how you went through it? Absolutely, I can. Um, so I left school always wanting to be a journalist, and I'd never done anything else. And worked my way up. I didn't go to university. I didn't go to journalism school. Um, this was many years ago and just started right at the bottom and worked my way up. And uh, really through, well, I suppose I must have been okay at it, but uh, also just was lucky enough to get some wonderful opportunities and ended up as the editor of a national newspaper in the United Kingdom called The Independent on Sunday, uh, which was a fantastic privilege to be at the helm of a, a, a very progressive, um, completely outside the sort of party political lines uh, newspaper. And uh, it was a, an exciting time, 2013. Um, there was a lot going on, very few women editors. And I absolutely relished that. And we may perhaps come back to that during the conversation. But uh, sadly, uh, heartbreakingly, um, Print media is um, in a difficult situation, and um, as I'm sure people will know. And after three years, the newspaper shut down, um, became uh, a, just a website or a website, but um, no, no longer a print publication. And so I uh, found myself without my dream job. I had my dream job, and and that job finished. And really, having always been interested in food and had been writing about food for some time I just thought well now what shall I do I'm 50 years old I'm not going to get I'm not going to bounce into another exciting job as an editor um, what can I do that's going to uh, give me a second mountain there's a there's a brilliant book called the second mountain and it's all about people who change their career or, or mm -hmm. with the idea of people changing their career uh, first time around perhaps for status or for a, a, a sort of traditional trajectory and second time maybe for passion And food for, was a passion for me, always has been. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to take what younger people might call a gap year or a, a, a year out of my life and train to be a chef, which I did. Uh, I was one of the oldest students in culinary school, uh, <laughs> but had had an amazing experience, um, which again, we perhaps will come back to some, some food ideas. Uh, and then at the end of that, uh, really you know, felt that I wasn't going to go and work in a restaurant. I was um, too old and too tired. And my feet were knackered. I couldn't do that job. It's a hard job as buddy, you know, better than anybody. Yep. Um, and so I was lucky enough really to combine the two things. So I, um, I have now a job as a food editor on the Sunday times newspaper. I work for a restaurant um, app and magazine called code in, in the UK, which Again, we, we'll talk a little bit about because it's wonderful. And um, I still do a little bit of private chefing now and again. So I've sort of had that kind of jump out of my comfort zone and, and sort of one foot now in each camp. And, and that feels really good. And you do both brilliantly well. So you've jumped out of 
your dream job into a passion and then you manage to combine both the dream and the passion a bit. I'm very lucky. It's not, that's, you know, that's certainly a fantastic uh, opportunity that I was given and just seized with both hands. You know, I think, uh, you know, journalism is probably like being a chef or being involved in food. You know, you, you do it because you really love it. And uh, to be able to combine those two things and, uh, and you know, have that kind of endless curiosity um, in both areas is, is, you know, I hope I never lose that. Well, we hope you, you stay and, and go on doing brilliant stuff with, with both. One of the things you, you, you mentioned which is quite dear to, to me and, and to you, and we've talked about this before, you said you were one of the very few women editors at the time. And the new world you joined, which is the professional chefing, is also a world having those challenges, which is gender equality is something that's new to the food world in the back of the house, and it comes with a lot of challenges. How, how did you perceive perceive this on both sides well having been a restaurant uh, critic for for some years i certainly was aware that it was a very male dominated world um in restaurants and and celebrity you know you want to call it that chefing all, all the big names were men uh, the the big restaurants and michelin star very male dominated for a long long time and newspapers the same thing the editors who you saw were men you know in a suit and tie in fact, not long after I became editor, I bumped into someone that I hadn't seen for many years. And they said, hey, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, got a lovely job. I'm editing The Independent on Sunday. And she said, oh, you, you know, you're not dressed like an editor. And I thought, <laughs> my God, is this what it is? You know, <laughs> she might be wearing a navy blue suit with a tie. Um, uh, and I think what's interesting in newspapers and uh, and in chefing in, in restaurants is that Things have evolved and people want more transparency and things have become more immediate. And, and in a way, a, a veil has been dropped in restaurants because of things like open kitchens uh, and a very uh, a pe uh, chefs are able to uh, be visual, to be present, to have their own presence on social media in these ways. So, you know, start, people are starting to, to notice uh, chefs and and again, a lot of women chefs who otherwise they might not have seen because the traditional ways in which they achieved fame uh, have dropped away a little bit. And in newspapers, I think people, you know, we are a 50% roughly uh, male-female split and, and people wanted to see themselves reflected and wanted to hear a, a wider variety of voices. And that's why now, you know, uh, seven years on from when I was appointed, when I was one of three female editors, there's now, I think, 50% of the newspaper, national newspapers in Britain are edited by women. Mm. Uh, you know, we're getting there, and that's, yeah. that's fantastic. That breath of fresh air, in, and I'm going to talk about what I know, which is the, the kitchen side of things, of finally dropping that veil of centuries of male-dominated kitchens, but also a very patriarchal system within the kitchens where if you were a woman chef, you were regarded as a woman cook, not as a chef, full stop, regardless of your gender. And I think this is changing a bit now. The I think what was actually what was when I was training to be a chef, actually, um, I was lucky enough to attend an event and I sat next to Antonio Carluccio, the late, amazing uh, Italian mm -hmm. uh, chef. I mean, you know, his books are wonderful. And we got into conversation and I said, oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, 
actually have switched careers and I'm training to be a chef. And he said, well, to be a great chef, first you must be a great cook. And I thought that was incredibly powerful because actually chefing is one thing, but the warmth of, of cooking, of, of, you know, giving people food with love is something that is a slightly different skill. And, and that is, I'm not going to sort of be very um, sort of basic and say that that's more of a female um, perspective. But I do think that, you know, the best chefs are people who who want to give people love and there are a lot of women doing that. And, and I, uh, you know, I think he spoke a great truth there and, and it wasn't something I'd really heard before, particularly from a great, you know, a, an esteemed chef. And I, I took that with me and really enjoyed it. And it's fantastic he said this because that's what our, today, our, our passion of cooking is about. It's not, a, it's not about being some, you know, exceptionally talented and skilled chef hidden behind a, a wall and, and doing some... Um, mysterious mystical creations it's rather being a chef in the sense of being a human being that loves sharing with people his passion or her passion the food of course i know and i always used to say when people were for a restaurant recommendation which you know happens when you've been writing about restaurants um you know i always tell people about the places not necessarily where it's michelin starred or you know they, they're doing making an apple that tastes like a you know foie gras or anything like that it's where the the service is is good where the atmosphere is warm where you feel welcome where you feel like you're part of you know not a family necessarily but just a, a you know you're being sort of held inside this this lovely experience and and those are the places that I would go back to even if perhaps the food wasn't the most exciting or or even necessarily the you know the the best executed or it didn't look the prettiest on the plate but where did I feel good and that, you know, I think that's exactly right, as you say. You know, it's 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 about that that feeling of drawing people in. Um, it, is what make you know hospitality. It's a it's a word that means you know welcoming. And and sometimes these these places that offer exciting, exceptional food that is extremely creative are a one off. You would want to try, but going to a restaurant that offers the whole package of real sincere hospitality and good food is something you'd you'd do many times a month or many times a year it, it's where people go because at the end I, I i feel that for a certain period of time in our industry we forgot what our essence is and our essence is to give people a moment of comfort and pleasure is not yeah, I to, mean to have them as experimenting things that are beyond um, those and maybe not giving them a fantastic service or that, that what you describe well, which is this hospitality of warmth and, and, and really an accompaniment of the guest that is beyond just, well, you know, here's my menu, I'm doing fantastic stuff and I'm going to try a few different chemical products on you. I mean, the late, great uh, A.A. Gill, who was the restaurant critic of the Sunday Times uh, for a long time, was said he was asked what his favorite restaurant was. And he said everybody can create their favorite restaurant by going somewhere time and again, preferably somewhere that's within short walking distance or uh, close to your home. And over time, they get to know you and they get to know what you like and and you get to know them and you can have a conversation and it and it develops into your favorite so he said don't ask me what my favorite is create your own favorite and i love that idea 
And I think that's something that we're really missing right now are those places which you would like to go back to, you know, pop back to whether you're going to have a huge meal with lots of friends or just even by yourself, just a, one glass of wine and a, a plate of pasta. Um, I think that that is a favourite and that is something that you can't really put a kind of a Michelin star on or, or, or a, you know, a, a rating because it's personal. And, and it changes between each one of us and and, and it's, is it a local restaurant and where you live by and I mean, there's so many other layers to what makes a good restaurant than than a Michelin star or um, a general rating um, but it, it it is what our our profession is about it's being there for people and today in in the difficult circumstances the world's going through you've continued being a being there for people and you you reacted quite quickly to to the lockdown by continuing to share love with people yes i th- well i think in terms of what the the newspaper does the, the magazine in which you know i edit the, the the recipes and the the writing about food uh we realized that people take comfort in food even if you know one of the greatest pleasures is of course for someone else to cook for you but in these times where we can't go out to eat uh, to cook for yourself at, at home and take a little bit more time which a lot of people are having um to try something new or to make something that they they've enjoyed eating elsewhere at home or to uh learn how to to sort of master something um But also just to use what's in your cupboard. I mean, one of the things that I loved was uh, I, we did a whole feature about using tinned fish, which actually uh, I discovered to my own shame that I had some tinned fish in my <laughs> cupboard I'd forgotten about. Uh, and it's like, you know what, you can make something really delicious here. And so we, you know, the word pivot has sort of become a bit of a cliche of the lockdown. But, you know, to, to pivot to for our, for our chef columnists, for me, for our restaurant critic, all to sort of do a bit of a turn and say, okay, we're in our own homes. How can we make the, the pleasure? You know, how can we make feeding ourselves or our family the pleasure, but also to read about what others are doing? You know, Marina, our restaurant critic, she's like, okay, what do I do? I have no restaurant to review. And so she's now cooking along with some of her favorite restaurant chefs and, and food figures in her own home. And so they're doing a bit like you and I right now, if we were chopping and, cooking and sizzling along together she's doing that and um it's still about the love of food and people are responding to that i think because um it's quite easy to feel you know uh, um and you know this is something i'm extremely conscious of in 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 your country in your situation that you know if you don't have um boundless freedoms um you know you it's really important to take pleasure in whether it's a, a perfectly ripe apricot or whether it's just in being able to make an omelette that looks really beautiful and, and it's just for yourself for your lunch but it's a pleasure and I think that's something that you know we can do in our writing and in our pictures and in publications. This freedom of, of freedom of choice and freedom of movement and it's quite interesting to see how people reacted to all of a sudden losing a lot of freedoms And it has brought out from people a lot of the better of people. We we're seeing all this community awareness, which is quite impressive. Um, you you've participated 
You, you've been cooking meals and, and getting them out also. Yes, I um, on, a, on a smaller scale and a larger scale. So on a small scale, um, near to where I live in London, I had a great friend who worked on the newspaper with me. And she moved out of London and um, she contacted me and said, look, um, I'm really sorry to, to sort of um, contact you like this about something. But my brother is a, an ICU doctor. And he's living very close to you, you know, where we used to live. And he's um, he's not feeling well. You know, he's working terrible hours and he's a terrible cook. And he's just <laughs> living on, you know, sort of, uh, you know, dried noodles and, and think, you know, I, mm. you know, like, would you mind just sort of, I can't remember how she started the conversation. I just said, oh, my God, just leave this with me, you know, and, and I'm cooking for, you know, I, my husband is, um, you know, got a huge appetite. I've got a 21-year-old daughter in the house. It's like, my son's left home, but let me just make as if it was the four of us. Like, he, like her brother mm. becomes my son for this time. And so I, I'll cook enough so there's a portion for him. And I put that into a, a box and, you know, make a few, you know, um, sweet treats. Uh, this week I've made some elderflower cordial because elderflowers in blossom. Yep. And, you know, take around a little package for him because home-cooked food is the it was just such a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to give food to him. But then on a bigger scale, um, a wonderful restaurant called Ciccone in, in the West End, where actually I cooked um, with Gemma Bell, who I know has been a, a guest here. She organized a, a dinner um, uh, in aid of the Amos Trust. And uh, I said, I really would like to be involved and cook. And um, got to, well, I already knew the people who, who owned the restaurant, um, Ravinda. And she said, um, she put out a blast on Instagram, which again is why social media is so great in these situations. She said, look, I want to cook for the hospital um, in South London. We're making 50 portions of food, but um, I can't get it there. And I was like, I have a little electric car. It's big enough to get across London, um, you know, with, with 50 meals in the back. Um, let me help you, please. And so I went to their closed up restaurant and, you know, we, we sort of made the food and took it in the car and, um, that was, you know, that was, it just felt right. It just felt that it was a small, you know, it's a drop in the ocean, but it's uh, it's an ocean that, you know, we, we've all got to put a bit into. Uh, and so you know, things like that, I think, are, uh, you know, important. And they are making a difference because we're, us as, as chefs, have a duty that is beyond the walls of our restaurants and what you did and what your friend has done. Um, are are just a continuation of your duties as chefs. Being a chef is not just yeah. serving a meal in a restaurant. I was just going to say, I just an, a, another situation on the street where I live, which is a typical London street where, you know, people move in and they move out and you don't necessarily know all your neighbours. And um, I got to hear that there was a young man down the road who uh, is actually living in a halfway house. Mm. So he's, I don't know his situation. It's either through, uh, it's possible he's come out of prison. It's possible that he's come out of a rehabilitation, but he obviously cannot leave his house. Um, and he was, you know, asking, you know, how can I get some food? And again, I thought, well, this is, this is an, you know, I'm not trying to do this to be, you know, a hero of the lockdown or anything, but you know what? It's, it's, it's really not an issue to make an extra portion or to, you know, cut the loaf in half and, and mm -hmm. you know, I've got some nice cheeses and just put them on the doorstep mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. those those things are, um, you know, like it goes back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, food being love. It's like I don't know him. I don't – I won't, I'll never get to know him. He probably won't be there for very long. But just a little bit of lightness is, um, you know, shining a little light is, is 
it's good. It feels like the right thing to do. Not you know, not for any other reason than just it's correct. Yeah, and being being uh, a human being, not more yep. than that. I think you know, as you said, nobody wants to be a hero of the lockdown, um, but we all have to act a bit as, as humans in the, those instances. So let let me take you to Palestine. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Well, you're supposed to come back with your husband this time, and you're supposed yeah. to cook in Bethlehem. Yes. Well, we were still listen. That's that. That's you know. That's still going to happen. I'm afraid you don't get out of it that easily. We just have to wait and be patient until the time comes when we can do that. I have all the patience in the world to have those two pleasures. One is to take your husband to every place we went to where. You would very often go into a restaurant or to a winery and taste something and be like, hmm, I have to get my husband. He's going to love this. So, Oh, my God. We, yeah, we'll, yeah. You'll come back. We're going to do that tour of visits again and, and meet all these great people. But then we'll cook together, and, and that'll also be a pleasure. So I do have patience. Don't worry, Lisa. I'm still waiting. Good. Um, I'm, I'm ready with my passport. Fantastic. We just need to be able to get airlines working. <laughs> <laughs> your your visit to Palestine, what, what marked you the most on the food level? Oh, my goodness. That would be an impossibility to, to narrow that down. I found so many, uh, you know, pleasures and, and uh, eye-opening experiences on, on many levels, but just on the food. Uh, I don't know. I think one of the, the funniest things I suppose I told everyone when I came back was seeing as we were driving around or walking around Bethlehem, seeing the, these little green pods that mm. I assume broad beans or, or peas or something. And, and, you know, I was, Oh, I wonder what those are. And asked somebody and told chickpeas and like, mm, okay, well, they're definitely not chickpeas because chickpeas are, you know, sort of beige and, and kind of dry. And, uh, of course, you know, was um, told, I suspect, by you, Lisa, these are chickpeas, you know, and bought some and opened them up, and, of course, there's fresh chickpeas inside. And that was just such a beautiful moment to think, you know what, just think properly about where these things come from, which we get in packages, you know. Um, so that was just a, a beautiful sort of moment. And, of course, I brought back a great big bag of them and, and just adored them. <laughs> um, I think um, meeting Dr. Nasa and... Uh, Listening to him talking about um, the olive oil and the, the the difference that he has made um, through his uh, company um, in in bringing in small scale farmers and making a big difference to people's lives was incredible. And actually, I thought many times about the time I had there and the products that I used back in home because, of course, I brought an extra suitcase and filled it with mm -hmm. food to bring back. And I just used the very last of my Canaan um, great big tin of olive oil that I brought back and just the last drop was used the other day in making a wild garlic pesto. Mm. And uh, I thought very fondly of that moment. I, I think one food memory that uh, I won't forget in a hurry, and, and it's all about bringing my husband back to Palestine, as we discussed, is we went to the Holy Land Sun restaurant for lunch and the food that they brought out. I mean, there were six of us and I, there must have comfortably been enough food for 20 people and just the absolute bounty and the beauty and the deliciousness of the chicken with the sumac you know the um musaka musaka the, uh, yep. the mus musakhan yeah 
Musa Khan, uh, was just the most tender, delicious, simple, but so beautiful. Um, that lunch, I think I, I, I could eat that lunch every day. Uh, so, but you know, everything about it, breaking the, you know, um, having the, um, the last evening when we had that, because of course it was Ramadan when I was there, which was made things I know very difficult for many people that we visited, but the pleasure on the last evening of having dinner all together at night, um, in the guest house was wonderful. Thank you. I, I, I have to tell you about this last, last day because there was a last dinner, but then the last day before Lisa went back to the UK. Down the street from, from the guest house and the restaurant, there's the oldest butcher in Bethlehem, and he reconverted into doing grilled chicken. And opposite him, there's this guy who does these fantastic breads. And we never had time to go and taste the chicken. So Lisa says, Fadi, do you think I can have wrapped sandwiches and take them on the plane with me? So she did <laughs> leave with roasted chicken and Shrek bread onto that flight back to London from here. It's true, but I'd rather like a child. I don't know if you ever used to go on school trips, but um, and you would take a packed lunch, and as soon as you got on the, the bus in the morning, you ate your lunch immediately, even if you'd only just eaten breakfast. It was very much like that with the chicken sandwich. I ate it before I ever got on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's fantastic that these little food memories, because they, they really create the identity of a culinary destination. Um, but of culinary history also. And you, you, you talk about Nasser and, and his olive oil. And then if you remember, we, we were very lucky to be the guinea pigs of Nasser, where he tested a few very old wheats that he had managed to find still cultivated in a few villages around where he is around Janine. And they were fantastic. Oh, they were one. I think one was called something like was it called camel, camel's foot or camel's head or something? Camel, it was camel's, camel's eye, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Um, it was. It was. It was incredible. It was a, a beautiful thing, and I, I'm. I love that idea because I think things like heritage grains and and products, which are, you know, as we have such a homogenized world and everything is so packaged and. You know, the banana has to be exactly one shape and size mm. and all that crap. You know, it's to, to for people to be starting to say, you know what, let's go beyond that and let's either, you know, bring back the, those lost arts of cooking or bring back those heritage products and grains is, is, is really exciting. And I just thought that was a, a really wonderful moment, actually. And I hope to see those products um, where I can buy them and use them. Um, in the not too distant future, I'm not sure where he's at with it. Is he is he able to produce it on a larger scale now? Not yet, not yet. But he's he's working towards that, and hopefully, he'll be working towards exporting them as a second stage. Um, whether it's Canaan or um, the salt producers, we, we went to see at the Dead Sea. They're all trying to. Preserve fantastic products, and, and and that's a bit our our role is is to help them do that. Um, but because they're good products, not because they're they're Palestinian products, um, and it, this whole sense of quality, which is quite important. But then there's also the sense of origin of products, and I think that's something we discussed when you were here. We as Palestinians have had a lot of our kitchen or our ingredients be labeled across the world 
otherwise, whether it's under very generic terms as Middle Eastern, which doesn't really prove provenance and, and, and certify provenance, um, or totally you know, as Israeli products. Is it something that being here made you more sensible to, or is it something that you've always been conscious of towards products like tahina, like Afrika, you know, all these products? I think I've always been conscious of I mean, my husband has a, a great interest in um, world affairs and uh, and in Palestine. He's, he's you know, uh, he's, he's always been very interested in that. In fact, um, last weekend we were uh, in the country at my mother's house and he was wearing his Gaza t-shirt, which caused quite the, the uh, quite the comments around the town apparently <laughs> but, um, he, he's always been um, been interested in these things and so we have been conscious we do look at the provenance of our products um, but I have to say that I learned a lot more probably from a slightly surprising um, experience which was when we went to the um, walled off hotel the, the Banksy hotel and uh, for all its um, you know different uh, qualities or um, things that one might have reservations about. The, the, the museum area, I really remember, had um, a display of products which um, were doing nothing to um, promote the Palestinian products and, in fact, were doing quite a lot to uh, suppress them in some instances. And I remember, actually, a, um, a hummus product um, of a brand which is very familiar in the UK, and I, I, I saw that and I thought, I, I, I'm not... I'm not absolutely sure that I've ever bought it, but I certainly will never, ever buy it again. And I will tell everyone else not to buy it. And I look at things like dates and, um, you know, there's a big supermarket uh, chain in the UK, which, um, you know, packages these things as Israeli. And I believe that they're not. I think it's a responsibility of every uh, citizen to be aware of where their food is coming from and, you know, it, and make sure that it is you're, you're buying consciously. Uh, and my eyes were very much open to that during the trip. And I hope that I've been able to impart that a bit through writing about it, but also just in, in conversations and doing things like cooking. When I cooked at Chikoni for the charity dinner, um, I had saved um, some flaked almonds that I had bought mm. um, in town with you on my last day on the shopping trip. And I used those to garnish my tahini ice cream um, because it was important to me for that to be a, a genuine flavor of the, the, the country that I was talking about. You see, that's what's wonderful with <clears throat> with food is there's a story behind every single ingredient, wherever you're using it and however you're using it. So you, you, you're using tahina, you're using olive oil, you're using the almonds. And in terms of spices, is there a spice that you've brought back and, and, and one are, are using in your cooking? Yeah, I mean, uh, sumac, I bought a two big bags of sumac um, with you and I, I've gone completely through one unsurprisingly it was I think nearly a year ago now and I'm nearly at the end of the second one um, that's something I use there was another one which I forgot to label and I'm not quite sure <laughs> it is, but I, I, I it's sort of like sort of zatar um, which again you know is a wonderful um, flavor boost and, and texture boost to to a salad or a dish um, and so I'm using that quite a lot um, I use the salt. I mean, I bought a, a lot of salt back um, from the, the Dead Sea, Mr. Halak salt. And there was one particular one, which is a combination of salt and pepper, actually, in a grinder. And I've sadly just come to the end of that. Um, but it's, it's something really beautiful about reaching for a product and having a connection to it. Um, and, you know, you don't have to have gone to the place to, to necessarily have that connection, but just to 
be aware of where it's come from and, and who's produced it and you know the story behind it is is a is a wonderful thing as a as a cook or a chef. Lisa, all all the indicators say that you have to come back. Your salt is running out, the sumac's <laughs> running out, the olive oil has just run out. I mean yes, you do have your your first trip abroad once all of this is safe is you and your husband in Bethlehem. Because yeah, I, I mean we can't we can't get you addicted to sumac and then leave you without sumac. It it would be terrible. It would be terrible. I I you know, I I'm very happy for that to be my, my first trip and I'm not just saying all those things, but, you know, they 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 genuinely are being used up and I think it's actually because it's interesting when you have a product I think all chefs would, would feel this, um, that you know, that they particularly love. You know, you don't you don't just sort of chuck it around, you know, you, you, you use it judiciously and you and you enjoy it every time. And uh, and funny enough, I do think that's something that um to go back to the lockdown briefly, um I think for a lot of people, uh, uh, um, they, you know, they're not wanting to necessarily buy those generic products in supermarkets because they don't want to go to the supermarket. It's not a pleasant thing to do, even if, mm-hmm. if you can get into the supermarket. Um, mm-hmm. I know that I've been buying, you know, my fish and my meat and my um, vegetables and fruits and things from from farms, from direct suppliers, because that enables you to to work around the system and. You know, a lot of people who aren't professional cooks or chefs are doing the same, and I think they're seeing, um, you know, that they the the product is so good um, because you know they're getting things from places that might otherwise necessarily be supplying professional restaurants, and so the fish that they're getting is really wonderful. But it might not be the stuff that they're used to getting. It's not just cod fillets. You know, it's something different mm-hmm. or new that they the fishermen are bringing in. Um, you know, they, they, they're getting uh, prime, you know, beautiful asparagus because that's coming into season right now. And they're getting access to that, which they wouldn't normally have. And so I think what I hope comes out of this is that everyone who's in a kitchen is getting a bit more of a connection to um, the products that they're using. Uh, but I consider myself very, you know, I'm, I'm enormously lucky to be able to have come to Palestine and to be able to bring back products and use them. Um, you know, I, I don't travel. I, I probably a lot of people think, oh, my goodness, you know, what a job she's got. She goes around the world and, you know, has food everywhere and does everything. And I don't do a lot of that. I, I'm at home at my desk most of the time. But if I do go somewhere, I do always um, make space in my suitcase to bring things back because, um, you know, the provenance of, of food is, is uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And I, I can certify that when you do travel, at least when you came to Palestine, it wasn't on a holiday. You do do work very hard. It's not what people imagine is, oh, she goes and tries a, a hotel and a couple of meals. That wasn't the case. We had very, very long days. <laughs> Some of them, by the end of the day, we <laughs> yeah. we couldn't move anymore. Um. It's true, but I think you know it's um it's a privilege to be able to do that. And uh, you know, what's the frustration? I think for many journalists, and I'm certainly one of them, is that um, you immerse yourself. Uh, if you're curious, if you have the curiosity of a journalist, you you don't just show up and sit by the pool and say, okay, that was a nice date, or oh, I enjoyed that, you know, coffee or whatever from from you know from with you brought to me within the guest house you know you go out and you you know you speak to people and uh, you know you, I had so many notes the frustration is not being able to um to include all of that in an article um in a mainstream publication you know that's the frustration and and 
that's the only thing I think, um, you know, I feel sad about is that, you know, I, there's enough to write, you know, a, a, certainly a series of articles, you know, you could probably write a book, um, but you're, you're not able to do that. You have to sort of boil it down to uh, a consumer audience and, and that's frustrating. And Rusan, so you're talking about publications. Let's go back to Code a bit because Code is quite an important publication for you. It's fantastic. Can, can you just share with us a bit what Code's all um, about? So Code was created by a, a, a young, a brilliant young entrepreneur in London called Adam Hyman. And he uh, really thought, again, very much immersed in restaurants himself, that one of the, the most exciting things about it is the sense of community of, of people from one restaurant wanting to experience another and to, to sort of see what's going on in the in across the world of restaurants. And uh, so he created an app really and a community for chefs to uh, and all hospitality staff to go to each other's restaurants and uh, by sort of becoming almost like a club and that developed over six or seven years to um, people who work in hospitality getting special deals in each other's restaurants or hotels or pubs or bars or anything um, but really what he wanted me to get involved with is to sort of give it that voice and for code to become a bit of a hub and so we He'd already created a small magazine. I hope that in my two years I've grown it into a bigger magazine where we share stories. They're now on a website. Um, we do a newsletter every week. And again, particularly right now when uh, hospitality people aren't able to do their jobs and they're frustrated, they can go there and get a weekly newsletter that just says, hey, this is an interesting thing to read or so-and-so is doing this. They've pivoted to takeaway or, you know, it's, it's giving what is a challenging uh, industry which is facing unprecedented challenges right now, a voice and a community. It's all about community at the end. Bottom line, whether it's within the industry or within the suppliers and in the whole, it's about community. It's about community values that, that can make us all do a better job from, from the chefs to the food writers to the editors to the farmers to the artisans. We all are a large community across the globe and, and being able to, to read and hear what's happening ma makes it an easier job where we're all more aware of, of what our colleagues are doing and what our best practices also. Absolutely that. And it goes back to everything that we've been talking about, to, to understanding the provenance of uh, food, to promoting uh, people, you know, for women and, and for different um uh practices in in kitchens um you know to to shine a light on all of that to um let people know that you know they're not alone so we do you know we try mm. to um talk a lot about charities and organizations which are supporting the mental health of people in hospitality that's a really important uh, aspect too mm. but also i think the lines are slightly blurred between the industry and the consumer and what i like about code is that it sort of stands at that crossroads it's not really like anything else out there because actually the bulletin can be subscribed to by anybody mm. you don't have to work in a restaurant to get the bulletin and so there are lots of people who are just fans of restaurants who who receive it um because they like to know what's going on yeah. and um yeah. i love that idea that everyone's everyone's invited everyone can have a bit of an insight into this mad restaurant that's event. right yeah you know everybody wants to, to see but actually one of the th just to come back to palestine briefly i think one of the best things about coming back was um every single chef that i spoke to because i've obviously been posting pictures on my mm -hmm. social media 
oh, I really want to go there. You know, I, you know, this is something I really want to learn more about. I found this really interesting. Tell me more. You know, it's that's it's a world where everybody wants to know what everyone else is doing. What did you see? What did you taste? Where did you go? Who's doing what? You know, I love that. And and maybe more in within chefs where we're always looking for new flavors, new challenges, um, new stories. Also, new yes, st- yeah. I think. Well, I mean, we're seeing the the Palestinian cuisine becoming more and more um, out there. It's it's taken a long time, but now it's it's becoming more visible, and and that's fantastic. Yeah, well, when you think about something like Sami Tamimi's book, you know, Palestine, which uh, I haven't actually seen yet, but is being published in the UK right now. Um, you know, I'm not sure how how much of the story it goes into, but just the idea that that book is being published is great. Sami was was a guest on the show a couple of weeks ago, and yes, it's great that his book is out there, that that his story is out there of being this, this Palestinian chef who's, who's been in London for 20-something years, but also the whole symbolic of, of what that means um, around the cuisine. And there's more books. There's a book coming out called Craving Palestine, which collects 100 Palestinians writing 100 recipes from all over the world because there's also the whole level of Palestinians on the diaspora, Palestinians that are here, Palestinians that are in what became Israel and, and different culinary histories that, that have in the last hundred years have evolved. Um, so yeah, the, the, there's a lot coming out and, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah, visibility is really important and, you know, if I can do anything to help with that, like I know a lot of other people feel this way, then, you know, we'll do what we can. So you've just got to keep telling us. We will keep bugging you with with our social media to start with. Thank you for for being with us this morning. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time in your home. It'll be a pleasure. And really, you gave me a bit of a cheat into what I need to start preparing for when you and your husband arrive here as your welcome gift. Excellent. Get the oven on. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great day, Lisa.